The song Amazing Grace is without a question the most well-known song in the English-speaking world. There, there's really no argument about that. It was written in 19, or I'm sorry, in 1779, and it was written in England by a man named John Newton. And according to John Newton, what he said about this song is that that song was his spiritual autobiography set to music. John, uh, his father was a sailor. He grew up in a, a uh, you know, oceanside or a seaside town and his father was a sailor and when John got old enough he followed in his father's footsteps and he too became a sailor and as a sailor he denounced his family's Christian faith he had grown up going to church but by his own admission he never had true faith and so as a sailor he was convinced by talking to other sailors and he became what in those days they call a humanist which is what we call today we would refer to that as an atheist or an agnostic and so as a sailor, you know, John Newton got caught up in all the things that sailors are infamous for, you know, uh, just revelry, one night stands, drunkenness, all the above. And he got so heavily into this that he even got fired from the shipping company that he worked for. Can you imagine being a sailor and being such a crazy sailor that the other sailors say, man, you're just, you're too much for us to handle. All right, so this is the kind of guy we're talking about. He got so heavy into partying that he got fired from being a sailor. That's pretty hardcore, right? So then what does he do? He goes and joins the Royal Navy. They're pretty much the only people who would take him. He joins the Royal Navy, but he, after a few months of being in the Navy, he becomes a deserter. He goes AWOL while they're at one of their ports. If it couldn't get any worse, he's now a criminal. He's now just a, you know, immoral person. And what does John Newton do? Could it get any worse? Yes, it could. What does he do? He goes off and he joins the crew of a slave ship. He joins the slave trade and eventually he becomes the captain of his own slave ship. They were transporting slaves from Sierra Leone to England and Ireland and even to the, the colonies, the United States. And uh, one of these years or one of these journeys that John Newton was making from Sierra Leone back to Ireland, uh, he got into a giant storm. Now you gotta imagine in those days, you didn't have radios that you could call in for help for. You didn't have much of anything. You're navigating as you could and you didn't have a whole lot of help if you got into trouble. And it really seemed like the boat was gonna sink. It was even filling up with water. You know, they were trying to bail out the boat. And, it, and Newton writes in his diary that for the first time in years since he was a child, he called out to God. See, even atheists call out to God when they're in trouble. John Newton did not become a Christian that day. I know you're like, oh, bummer, right? But he did not become a Christian that day. But it was a turning point in his life. He says from that point on, he was no longer a humanist. He was no longer an atheist. He began to believe in God. And, and while it took a while, what happened was that eventually he did give his heart completely over to God. He quit the slave trade. He got a job on the mainland and he, he started attending church. And during that time, he truly gave his heart to God. And you know what happened? God changed him from the inside. Newton knew that he was a wretched man. There was no question. He was a man who had sinned grievously. He had done terrible things. And the thing was, though, that he was so blown away by the grace and mercy of God. The fact that God would love him and accept him in spite of the terrible things that he had done. It, he was well aware that his salvation was not his own working. It was not his own doing. It was nothing but the gift of God. Nothing less. 
He knew well that he had nothing to boast in. He had nothing to stand on stand on except the cross of Christ John Newton went on and you know what he pursued a career in ministry he he wanted to become a pastor he never actually did he became like an elder in his church but he also became a prominent figure in the anti-slavery movement in England and eventually this led to the abolition of slavery in the British Empire John Newton also began writing hymns and poems and he wrote a number of them but of course the most famous one that we all know is Amazing Grace. John Newton's spiritual autobiography. It's the story of how God loved him and God saved him. How God gave him a future and a hope not because of how great he was but actually in spite of who he was. In spite of all he had done. Only because of God's loving kindness for him. God's loving kindness, God's grace that knows no bounds. And the reason that song has remained so popular across different continents for generations and generations is because of this. Every time we read that, we hear that song, every time we sing that song, people sing those words and they say, you know what, this isn't John Newton's autobiography. This is my autobiography. This is the story of my life. So this is the amazing grace. And here in the book of Galatians, which we've been studying for a number of weeks, which we come to the end of this week, we are talking about this amazing grace. This is the subject of this book. But here's the thing about grace, and here's what we're going to address here at the beginning. There are so many people who hear that message of grace, right? That our right standing before God isn't based on what we do, but based on what Jesus did for us on the cross. That the thing is this, so many people hear that, and you know what the inclination of our human heart is? Is to see that as an opportunity to be exploited. Is to see it as a loophole to be taken advantage of. And we start going down this line of thinking, where we're like, hey, we hear this message of grace, we think, Wait a second here. I, I get this, right? So you're telling me that I can do anything. And then I just got to ask for forgiveness and trust in Jesus. And it's all cleared up. And God will forgive me. You're telling me that God will bless me even if I sin. Even if I don't do anything, God will bless me if I just trust in Jesus. Interesting. I'm going to keep that in mind. Thanks for letting me know, you know. That's where our mind goes. That's the inclination of our fallen heart. And this is exactly why so many churches have shied away from the preaching of the message of grace. Because you know what they say? They say, we're afraid that if we, treat, we teach the fullness of freedom in Christ, if we teach the fullness of the message of grace, people aren't going to be able to handle it. They're not going to be able to handle the freedom that the gospel gives. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to go out and they're going to use grace as a license to sin. As an excuse to do whatever they want and then just toss up a prayer and say, sorry, I'll never do it again. And then nothing ever really changes. You see what I'm talking about? They're abusing it. And so the question we have to face is this. What do we do with this scandalous message of grace? It is scandalous. What do we do with it? Because what about these people who will abuse it? What about the people who will take advantage of it? Who will take advantage of the grace of God? Because we've all seen those people, right? We've all met those people. In fact, if we're completely honest with ourselves, at times we've all been that person, right? That uses grace as an excuse, as a permission to sin. 
And here in Galatians 6, that is the exact issue that Paul the Apostle addresses. And here's what he says from verse 7. If you've got your Bible, please do follow along. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. If you need a Bible, just stick your hand up and our ushers will get you one. Here's what it says. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Now in this context of grace... Mocking God, that, that thing that Paul says here, mocking God is exactly what I'm referring to here. It's this idea of taking advantage of the loving kindness and grace of God and saying, yeah, I know this is wrong and I know it's, you know, sin and all, but, but you know what? There's grace. It's cool, right? God will forgive me. In fact, you know what? I know a little something about how this whole system works. I know that he has to forgive me. If I ask, you know, I've kind of figured out the system. I, uh, I'm kind of working it. I know, I know the rules, you know. But here's what Paul says to the person who abuses grace, who tries to work the system, who tries to use it as a license to sin. He says, don't be naive. God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, then from the flesh you will reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, though, from the spirit you will reap eternal life. And here's the point. If you sin, yes, there is grace. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There is grace. There is forgiveness. But just because God allows, uh, or I'm sorry, just because God forgives you when you sin, there are always going to be repercussions. Always. It's like when you plant a seed in the ground, you may not see it sprout up right away, but it will. It's not a question. It's just a matter of time. There's no doubt about it. And those repercussions, they aren't God punishing you. See, that's important to understand. Sowing and reaping, we're not talking about God punishing you. They aren't God paying you back for your sins. Those are the natural consequences of your actions, of your choices. Choices have uh, repercussions. That's the point here. Yes, God forgives sin. Yes, God restores but the repercussions of your actions and decisions, they don't just disappear into thin air when you're forgiven. So don't be deceived. In fact, what this verse tells us is that God, as one who controls all things, right? He could stop us from suffering the consequences of our own actions, couldn't he? I mean, he could if he really wanted to. He could override that, right? He could get rid of the the consequences and the repercussions save us from those things but but oftentimes he doesn't many times he doesn't and when he doesn't do that we need to understand that is not a form of punishment from God but it is a form of discipline see like a loving father who has a stubborn child you know he, he, he'll say maybe son you need to learn this lesson the hard way you're not learning it from me just telling you Maybe you're going to have to experience some of the consequences of your actions in order that you might grow, in order that you might change and mature. See, I know a lot about stubborn kids, uh, not because of my kids, but because of me, because I was a stubborn kid. I, uh, I was thinking, you know, on Father's Day, I share this story with you. My dad's here, so uh, I know he likes this story. So uh, when I was a kid, my dad had this, this big old truck. It was a 1966 Chevrolet panel van. And, uh, you know, it's one of those, it's this big monster truck, got like one mile to the gallon. And uh, it's one of these trucks that had like a full metal dashboard. You guys remember those things? You know, it's old uh, American trucks, the full metal dashboards. And, and, you know, I was a stubborn kid. And every day on the way to school, uh, he would tell me, 
put on your seatbelt? And I would say, no, I hate putting on my seatbelt. I'm not going to do it. I don't want to. He'd say, son, put on your seatbelt. And I'd say, no, I hate my seatbelt. And he'd say, listen, if we get in an accident, you're going to fly right through the windshield and you're going to die. And I love you and I don't want you to die because I like you the way you are. So please put on your seatbelt. And I said, whatever, dad. You don't know what you're talking about. I don't want to wear that seatbelt. It's too restricting. I hate how it feels. So one day he stopped arguing with me. One day he said, you don't want to wear your seatbelt? Okay. So there was this hill that we went down, you know, to go to the school. So one day we're going down this hill. I'm sitting there. And of course, you see where this is going, right? He just stomps on those brakes, you know, just stomps on them. And where do I go? I just flew. I'm like flying into the windshield and the dashboard, hitting my head. I'm like curled up in the, in the you know, space between the dashboard and the windshield. And uh, I just, you know, it hurt. And, uh, you know, and then he stopped the car and he said, all right, put on your seatbelt. You know what I said? No, <laughs> I'm not putting on my seatbelt. So, uh, so, you know, my dad was smart enough to uh, wait a day or two because I was bracing myself for it to happen again. He waited a day or two and then again, you know, going down the hill, going to school. Boom, stomps on the brakes. There I go, flying into the windshield once again, into the dashboard, hitting my head. It hurt, man. But uh, now, was my dad mean? That's the question. Was my dad being mean? Well, I thought so at the time. I thought, oh, what a, you know, what a mean person, what a cruel person. But you know what? Now I look back on it and I see it differently. You know, now I look back and what I see is a loving father who genuinely wanted the best for his kid, who really didn't want me to end up dead on the street, you know, or dead in an accident. But his child was stubborn and was doing something stupid that was possibly deadly. So in, what did he do? In a safe, controlled environment, he let me experience, he let me get a taste of the natural consequence of my action. And guess what? After that second time, I put on my seatbelt. You know why? Because I got a taste of that dashboard. I knew what, uh, I knew what it felt like when you don't wear your seatbelt. And in a similar way, our Heavenly Father, He will allow us at times to experience the natural repercussions of our sins. Sometimes God saves us from the consequence of our actions, but many times He doesn't. And here's why. Because forgiveness and reaping the consequences of what you've sown, those are two different things. And God will allow us to experience the consequences of our own actions and decisions not as a form of punishment or payback, but as a form of discipline, training us up as his kids who he loves. When you suffer the, the repercussions of your sins and errors, again, that's not God punishing you. You might say, well, well, if he's forgiven me, if he's forgotten my sin, if he's cast it as far as the east is from the west, then why do I need to still suffer the, the consequences of my actions? Why can't he spare me from that too? Well, here's why. Because allowing us to experience the consequences of our actions, that's not cruelty, that's not payback, that is a form of loving discipline from a father who loves his kids. I know a guy who got involved in sin, he got caught, and he repented of his sin, but guess what, he still had to go to jail, and now he has a record. And now he can't get a job. And guess what? Nobody trusts him. He's like, why can't they just forget it? Well, because there are repercussions. You reap what you sow. Did God forgive him? Of course God forgave him when he asked for forgiveness. John 1, or 1 John verse 1, chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. 
right? But forgiveness and reaping the consequences of your actions, those are two different things. Don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. Have you heard of a man named Lot? He was the nephew of Abraham. He was Abraham's traveling partner on the journey of faith that God sent Abraham on. And Lot and Abraham split up at one point. Lot went to live in the city of Sodom, which is a pretty bad decision on his part, actually. But uh, what's highlighted in the New Testament, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, what you'll see is this. Lot is highlighted as an example for us who are believers. Of, of a righteous man who lived in a godless society, but yet he still walked with God, right? And that's an example for us. Lot was a righteous man in the midst of a wicked city. But here's the thing. Do you guys remember what's the last story we read about Lot in the book of Genesis? What's the last thing, what's the last message that Lot preaches to us in the book of Genesis? Well, what it is is this. There's this night where he gets really drunk and then he ends up sleeping with his two daughters. Can you imagine this man, Lot, the righteous man? This is just unimaginable, right? For any father, can you imagine Lot waking up the next day and realizing what he had done? It's horrible. Imagine this man, I, I just imagine him waking up the next morning and just grieving and weeping and crying, you know, just unable to comprehend what just happened. You know, his heart just shattered that he could have gone to such depths of depravity. How could I have done this, you know? And, and here he is, he's supposed to be the godly man in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah, who's different, who's separate, who knows God, who's holy. And now he gets drunk and he commits an unspeakable sin with his own daughters. Do you think that Lot repented of his sin? Do you think that God forgave him? The answer is yes, most definitely. Most definitely on both accounts. Uh, because in the New Testament, Lot is referred to as righteous Lot. He's held up for us as an example of a righteous man. So God forgave him. And God restored him. And God imputed righteousness to him on the basis of his faith. But here's the thing. Even though God forgave Lot, even though Lot repented, even though Lot's relationship with God was restored, there were still consequences to his actions. Both of his daughters got pregnant and they had baby boys. And uh, their names were Moab and Ammon. Maybe you've heard of the Moabites and the Ammonites. They're the descendants of Moab and Ammon who are the result of Lot's sin with his daughters. And these kids, you know, become nations and what follows is generation after generation of strife and war and conflict and death and pain. Yes, there's grace. Yes, there's forgiveness for all who turn to the Lord, but don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And, and, and you see, one thing we need to understand about sin is this. This is something that I, I always want people to understand. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. 
Let me say that again so you can think that through. Sin is not forbidden, be, or sorry, sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. That we gotta change the way, that, or the, correct the way that we think about sin and about the word of God when he tells us not to do things. Sin causes destruction. And it's a loving father who tells us what to do and what not to do because he cares about us and doesn't want us to mess ourselves up and hurt ourselves and, and like my dad who wanted me to put my seatbelt on I found it restricting but you know what when God's word says don't be filled with wine in which is dissipation we say now ah, whatever you know no thanks he says be holy as I am holy and we say nah how about instead of being holy I just do whatever I feel like and then I'll apologize for it and that'll work out right there's grace there's grace. Yes, there is grace. There is forgiveness, no question. But don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. But here's the thing. Holiness is the pathway to happiness. God said this, uh, uh, God says, be holy as I am holy. Why does he want us to be holy? Is he trying to hold us back from having a good time? Not at all. He's telling you something very profound, very profound truth, that holiness is the pathway to happiness. You know, God, he's doing all right. He's, he's pretty, you know, self-confident and happy. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, we read this about Jesus. It says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. You know what that means? It means that Jesus was the happiest person in town. He was the happiest person in town. And here's why. Because he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. He avoided sin and he did the work of God. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. Sin causes destruction. And that's the point here. Don't be deceived. You think that grace is just a permission to do all kinds of sin, right? Yes, there is grace. There is forgiveness. But the consequences of sin are destruction. If you want to be happy... Here's what the Bible says. Pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. And because, here's why. Because holiness leads to happiness. I had this friend growing up. She was one of the only Christian friends that I knew when I was in high school. And, uh, and after high school, I moved away. And, uh, and, you know, she got involved in church. We kept in touch a little bit. And she was serving as a volunteer at this youth group. And, you know, everything seemed to be going great, you know, in her correspondence with me. Well, one night... Uh, my friend, right, she goes out with some friends from work to party, and, uh, and she starts drinking, right? And she's compromising a little bit, and she ends up getting really drunk, right? Next thing she knows, she wakes up the next morning, she's in somebody's house, in somebody's bed, she doesn't know how she got there, and uh, she's just feeling terrible, you know? Well, to make it worse, a few weeks later, she finds out that she's pregnant, and uh, she's just in shock, right? Her life has just been flipped upside down. And the guy who's the baby's dad, he tells her, get an abortion. That's it. Just get an abortion. I don't want this child. And he, and he says that if she doesn't get an abortion, then he's going to deny that he did anything. And he's not going to have anything to do with this child. 
So obviously, on top of everything, you know, she has to step down from her role in serving in the church and the youth group because she's no longer an example for these kids who are, are struggling with the exact same kinds of temptations that she's, uh, that she's compromised in. And, and so what does she do? She decided to have the baby. She moves back home. She had to quit university. She had to quit her job. Her whole life changed, right? Did God forgive her for the, that one night of of, you know, error, of sin, of folly? Absolutely God forgave her, no question. But even though she's forgiven, she's still pregnant, right? She still has to deal with this, raising this child now as a single mom, without a dad, without a husband. But there's something else that you need to know about grace. And that's this, that God by his grace, you know what he's able to do? You know what he loves to do? He loves to redeem that which has been messed up man he loves to redeem he, he is a God who loves to redeem the worst situations for your good and for his glory in Joel chapter 2 verse 25 God speaks to the nation of Israel after a time of destruction and he tells them I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. You see, the locusts are a picture of devastation, of destruction. They come in in these swarms and they leave nothing in their path. They just ruin everything. It's total devastation. So what God is saying is this. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Those years of your life that you wasted away, that you piddled away, the destruction that you reaped because of the consequences of your actions of your choices the things that you sowed but I'm going to work a work of restoration and what that means for you and me is this that if you will take the mess that you have created with your bad decisions with your sins and you will place it at the foot of the cross in the hands of God you know what he will take that mess and he will bless that mess and he will restore the years that the locust has eaten Remember that story about Lot that I told you just a second ago? Remember the thing that Lot did? He got drunk. He slept with his own daughters. They give birth to Moab and Ammon, and that leads to generations of strife and turmoil. Well, there's more to the story than that. One of the daughters of Moab is a woman that you've probably heard of. Her name is Ruth. You ever heard of Ruth? By the providence of God, by the grace of God, Ruth leaves the country of the Moabites, you know, east of the Jordan, and she comes into Israel, and she meets this man named Boaz, who marries her, who takes her in, and who becomes her kinsman redeemer. He redeems her, right? And this woman, Ruth, the daughter of Moab, she becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, right? What Lot did was a terrible mistake, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was sin, right? Of course it was. And did that sin have long-lasting repercussions that they had to deal with? Absolutely. But here's the deal. By the grace of God, God chose to bring something glorious and beautiful from that mess. He brings beauty from ashes. That's the kind of God that he is. He decided to work through Lot's mess, Lot's mistake, and bring salvation to the world. Did God ordain that Lot would do that thing that he did? No, but God was gracious. 
And God will be gracious to you too. He can restore the years that the locusts have devoured. You may have sinned in grievous ways. But here's the thing about the grace of God. The grace of God is that he not only forgives, but he redeems. Even the terrible circumstances that are the result of your mistakes that you have nothing, no one else to blame for. You know what? Place them in the hands of God. And by his grace, he can redeem all things. He can bring beauty from ashes. If you'll just turn to him and place that mess in his hands, he can redeem it. You remember my friend from school, the one I was telling you a story about just a second ago? The one who got pregnant, had a baby out of wedlock. Well, it was a baby girl, and her name is, uh, her name's Grace. You know, my friend knew that she had sinned, and she had messed up, and that she had to deal with the repercussions of her sins. That was a fact. She couldn't avoid it. But she was still thankful for the grace of God, that God wasn't finished with her, even though she'd messed up, that God didn't write her off, that God's grace would see her through, even this, even as she had to raise this little girl on her own. Well, the rest of the story is this, that this girl, this little girl, Grace, when she was about a year old, my friend met a great guy. He's a Christian. He loves the Lord, and he wasn't scared off by the fact that she's a single mom with a baby from a different man. And this man, he married her, and he adopted that little girl. And uh, now he's her dad, you know? And he loves her, and he raises her, and he provides for her, and he cares for her. And now Grace has a little sister. And you know what my friend would say? He'd say, she'd say, I sinned. I did. I had to deal with the repercussions of it. And they were huge. They were life-changing. But the Lord has redeemed the mess that I made, that is grace. That is amazing grace, amen? He restored what the locust devoured and he gave me a daughter and she would say, I would never trade her for the life that I lost in order to have her. I would never go back on it. I I, I didn't deserve God's grace. He gave me much more than I would have deserved. I, I didn't deserve God's grace. I messed up, but in spite of that, God gave me much more than I could have ever deserved or even asked for grace it's amazing grace because he loves us and I want you to think about that grace that we're talking about and think about this in light of that grace of God who loves us who blesses us who who redeems us from the pit in spite of the fact that we haven't deserved it how can we be so shallow as to view the grace of God as an opportunity to be exploited as a loophole to be taken advantage of don't be deceived. God won't be mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from the flesh he will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit he will reap eternal life. At any given moment, you and I, we are sowing to either the Spirit or the flesh. Imagine two dogs, okay? Imagine a white dog represents the spirit and imagine a black dog which represents the flesh at any moment you're feeding one of these dogs and what happens is if you feed the one it gets bigger and stronger and the other one gets smaller and weaker and if you feed the other then the the opposite happens if you feed the white dog you know what happens he gets stronger he gets bigger and the black dog gets weaker and weaker to the point where he has no more strength and all he can do is just let out little whimpers right But here's the deal about the black dog. He's aggressive. If you feed that black dog, 
he, he gets bigger and he gets stronger and his teeth begin to be bared. And eventually that black dog, you know what he'll do? He'll kill that white dog. He will devour him. And then you know what he'll do? He'll turn on you and he will devour you as well. That's the point of sowing to the flesh versus sowing to the spirit. The law of sowing and reaping is basically this. It's two, two things to take note of. We got a slide here. It says, whatever you sow, that you will reap. Whatever it is that you sow, that is what you will reap. And the other part is this. Whatever you sow, you will reap. It's not a question. You will. Just like planting a seed, it doesn't sprout immediately. But it happens. It will come up. And if you want, what kind of harvest do you want? You know, if you want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if you want those to be the kind of things that characterize your life and your heart, then you need to sow to the Spirit because those are the fruits of the Spirit. If you want that kind of harvest, you've got to sow the right seeds. And if you don't sow the seeds, then how can you expect a harvest. You who garden, you know exactly what I'm talking about. How do you sow to the Spirit? Here's, it's real simple. Jesus said that the Word of God is the seed. So how do you sow to the Spirit? You sow the, the seed of the Word of God into your heart. It takes root, it generates, it takes root, it causes growth, and it bears fruit. Sow the seed. If you want to bear fruit, sow the seed. Sow the seed of the word into your heart. Read your Bible. Read it. Spend time reading the word of God, taking it in every day. It's the seed. It will bear fruit. Just keep taking it in. Keep sowing into your heart. Again, if you don't sow the seeds, then how can you expect to reap a harvest? You can't. And then you're surprised that the fruit of the Spirit seems to be lacking in your life. Spend time in the Word of God. Sow the seed of the Word into your heart. Maybe some of you would say, but when I read the Bible, there's just so many things that I don't understand. It's some of the stuff just doesn't make sense. I, maybe I find it easier to just read Christian books, to read devotionals. Because those people at least give me some application. They explain things, you know. And you know, they have a lot of Bible verses in them. Well, you know what else has a lot of Bible verses in it? The Bible, right? And, uh, and if you don't understand everything you read, that's okay. And I want to tell you why it's okay. Read it anyway. That's maybe, I think, I'm even going to say, I think one of the best things you can do is read the Bible even though you don't understand it. And let me explain to you why. Because you know what happens when I read something in God's Word that I don't totally understand it's stuck in my head and I'm pondering it I'm like man what was that all about I don't get that and I and I'm thinking about it and I'm intrigued and I ponder it all day long it's it's in my head just rolling around what is that all about you know what could that mean and then guess what when I when I end up talking with other people who also read the word Guess what we talk about? We're like, hey, you know what? There's this thing I've been reading and I don't understand it. Maybe we could discuss it a little bit. And then you start talking about it. You start discussing it and guess what? You're no longer talking about the weather because you got nothing better to talk about. Now you're talking about the word of God. Now you got iron sharpening iron. Why? Because you read something that you didn't understand. And guess what? You got something to talk to your pastor about now. Not just like, hey, how's it going? How's the family? But hey, I've been reading this and I don't get it. Tell me. You got something to go research. You got something to look into. 
You've got something stored in your heart that as you read the word of God, that's going to keep clicking back like, oh, this kind of explains that thing that I read and I had no idea what it was talking about. See what I'm saying? Keep bringing the word. It's like bringing the grain into the storehouse. Just load it up because in time that will bear fruit. It will be a harvest. It says in verse 9, as we continue on, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't grow weary in doing good. Those people that you pour into, all that energy, all that time, those good things that you're trying to do, the things that you're trying to make happen, sometimes you wonder, is this even worth it at all? Am I just wasting my time because I don't see that I'm having an impact? Here's what it says about that. Don't give up. Just because you don't see the harvest yet, that doesn't mean that nothing's happening beneath the surface. Don't give up. Don't stop watering those seeds because here's what it says. If you don't give up in due season, you will bear a harvest. You will reap if you don't give up. Verse 10, it says this. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And that relates to what we uh, skipped here at the beginning, which is verse 6. It says this. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. You know, as Christians, we seek to do good to all people. We seek to change the world, right? That's, I want nothing less than to see this city changed with the gospel. Amen? Do you want that too? Yeah, but, but here's the thing. You know where we start? We got to start here. We got to start here with establishing a culture of grace, a culture of forgiveness, a culture of love, a culture of the gospel, where we serve each other, where we love each other, where we support each other, and then we can take that out there. That, you know, we can't change out there before we get it dialed in in here but once it's dialed in in here then we take it out there and we see change happen he says in verse 11 see what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand now there's some debate over what this means does it mean that Paul is now taking the pen from the scribe and writing this salutation in his own hand or does it mean that he's been writing this whole letter with his own hand in big bold letters like when you get an email from your boss in all caps, you know, cap lock, caps lock. You know, he's just writing big fat letters as big as he can. Or, you know, because he's emphatic. Or is it maybe because Paul had a problem with his eyes so he had to use big letters because he has an eye disease. Now we don't know for sure but, but all those scenarios would seem to fit. Certainly Paul was emphatic about what he's saying here. He was passionate about the gospel. He was passionate about grace. He didn't want these people adulterating the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yes, indeed, he was emphatic. Did he also have an eye problem? Well, it seems if you read through his letters that he did have an eye problem. Uh, I believe personally that this eye problem is Paul's thorn in the flesh. Mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which Paul prayed earnestly for God to take away from him. But God's response was, no, because my strength is perfected in your weakness. So we don't know, but all those seem to fit. From verse 12, we read this. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. But even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 
But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Here's the point. It's not about the law. It's not about the law. You know, anybody can keep the law. You don't have to even believe in God to keep the law. Do you know that? You can be like a total heathen, atheist person and yet be very moral. And yet even go through the motions of obeying the Ten Commandments, right? What really matters is a life that's changed by God. And we as Christians, we are totally missing the point of the gospel if we are caught up in the do's and the don'ts. If we're caught up in do's and don'ts, we are missing the point of the gospel. What really matters is that a person become a new creation through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that they be born again to new life. And here's the thing. Once you become a new creation, then God changes you from the inside out. It's impossible to change people from the outside in, to try and reform their behavior and hope that their heart will follow. You gotta reform the heart. You change the heart and the outside will follow as well. So again, the most desperate need that this world has is for people to become new creations in Christ, to be born again to new life in Christ. And we finish with this. As those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, from now on, let us cause, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And the book of Galatians, this great manifesto of grace, it appropriately ends with this benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, we thank you for grace that redeems us, that saves us from the pit. We thank you for grace that blesses us in spite of who we are and what we've done. It gives us future and hope. Lord, grace that disciplines us and trains us up as the people you want us to become, that forms us. Lord, thank you for grace that you pour out upon us. And Lord, thank you for this message. And Lord, truly, may we go with grace this morning. May we go with that sense of your love for us, that sense that we are covered by your blood, that your grace is abundant in our lives because of Jesus. And Lord, as we take communion now, we remember your body broken for us. Lord, this is the basis of our relationship with you. It's the basis of the gospel of grace that your body was broken for us, that you took our place on the cross. You lived the life that we should have lived. You died the death that we should have died, Lord. Thank you that you took our place. And we remember that and we celebrate that this morning as we take the body and the blood in remembrance of Jesus.